0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the LGBTQ Studies channel on the New New Books Network. My name is Leo Valdez, and I am your host today. I am here with Dr. Julio Capo, who is a professor at Florida International University in Miami. Thank you very much for being with me today, Julio.
1: Goodness, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Dr. Julio Capó is a transnational historian whose research and teaching interests include modern U.S. history, especially the United States' relationship to the Caribbean and Latin America. He addresses how gender and sexuality have historically intersected with constructions of ethnicity, race, class, nation, age, and ability. Dr. Capó also produces public-facing work. He curated an exhibit called Queer Miami, A History of LGBTQ Communities, which won the 2019 Museum Excellence Award from the Florida Association of Museums. He's also published in numerous mainstream publications, including the Washington Post and El Nuevo Día, which is in Puerto Rico. His first book, which we will be discussing today, is called Welcome to Fairyland, Queer Miami Before 1940. Published in 2017, Welcome to Fairyland is the only book on queer Miami in the first half of the 20th century. It won a number of important awards, including the Charles S. Snyder Award from the Southern Historical Association for the best book written on Southern history. Julio, thank you very much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you. And thank you for that very generous introduction. It means a lot to me. Thank you.
0: Before we get to Welcome to Fairyland, I wanted to ask a little bit about your career because as I was researching you, I found some interesting factoids.
1: Now now I'm nervous.
0: <laughs> no need to be nervous. I didn't I didn't research too far. I didn't go into Facebook or all those places. <laughs> but you used to be a journalist before yeah. you went into academia. Is that correct?
1: It is. I was I worked in broadcast mostly. Yeah. TV broadcast. I did. I used to write and produce the news uh, for for my, in, in Miami's local uh, Fox station and ABC stations. Yeah.
0: Oh wow, that's really interesting. how <laughs> How was that transition from journalism to academia?
1: You know, uh, I want to say that it was really generative. Um, I mean, not always easy because you know there's some kind of uh, and I remember sometimes you would hear people say things like, I'm going to take the journalist out of you. And I was like, I'm not even sure what that means, but um, <laughs> uh, I find that there's so many useful skills uh, that come along with, with doing um, journalism, uh, right? Like, I mean, what is it that we do when we're, uh, when I would write and produce the news locally, I was thinking a lot of the same questions that I was uh, asking as a, as a historian. Um, and even some of our methods, while, you know, they're distinct and, and, and different, in, in a lot of different in a lot of important ways, um, I was used to doing archival work in different kind of archives, like even our media archives or, or thinking about um, how some stories are told differently. And, I mean, and you learn how to be, you, you become really good with deadlines, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good exercise to have in academia, certainly, um, because deadlines are, you know, you're, you're responsive immediately to, to what's happening in the news and you have no time to, to, re- you know, really kind of, uh, procrastinate. Right. Um, and you do, you know, doing oral histories though you call them interview, you know, like there's lots of similar skills that I found really helpful, um, and having that kind of background. Um, so I, I, I still dabble a lot. I still, as you noted in the intro, like I, I, Um, it's, it's a, it's a passion for me too to make, uh, it's part of public facing work is to make sure that the, the research we produce, uh, becomes available, right. To, to people beyond the Academy. How do we translate this, this work, um, you know, beyond the university walls, certainly beyond that, right. If we're not doing that kind of work, um, I'm not sure that, that, um, it's, it's, uh, it's worth it, right. Like that is, (laughs) we want, we want to do, uh. Uh, work that is meaningful to the, the the largest group of people as possible, right? That's how it can be transformative.
0: Absolutely, I totally agree with you. And it, I did see that connection between journalism and like public history, and I was going to ask specifically public facing work, the intersections of that with like queer and trans history and museums. And if you could comment a little bit on that, because, you know, you, you did curate that exhibit queer Miami and yeah. So I wonder how are museums receptive to queer and trans history. Goodness.
1: This is a great question. Um, I mean, all the, <laughs> it, it's a, it's also a really, it's, it's a, it's a big one. That is, um, I mean, the answer is yes and no. I mean, that is in, in terms of receptive, I, you know, certainly, I think part of that is, uh, right, that so many museums and cultural institutions that are doing good work are are really responding to the wants and needs of, of the community at large. Um, and that is like, you know, when we think about uh, a lot of academic presses or, or even, you know, kind of venues and spaces, we talk about things like peer review, right? Um, where people are, are kind of peer reviewing your work in, in this kind of anonymous way, usually, um, I feel like this is what the public does for a lot of cultural institutions and museums, right? That is that you are often, the peer reviews are the pub, are the general publics themselves. And I love that, right? It keeps all of us really, really honest. And it also makes sure that, that museums uh, and exhibitions are curated um, with the community and in response to the community and as part of the community. I think that uh, if it's not right coming, if it's not a community uh, led effort, um, it's, it's, it's not really kind of reflecting the needs and the wants of, of you know, why are we studying this history, right? Why why, are we, why do we need to understand our past? So many museums, especially those that, you know, historically, those who know, you know, you know LGBTQ studies and history, um, it was really important for, for LGBTQ archives to create spaces for themselves as, as distinct institutions that collected and preserved Um, LGBTQ pasts, um, right? I mean, that is especially in in response to state erasure and to, um, you know, particular stories that were told around LGBTQ experiences. Um, But so, I mean, it was really important for these cultural institutions, these LGBTQ archives and spaces and community centers to emerge. Um, But a lot of, right, mainstream museums and other cultural institutions have simply never really thought about collecting LGBTQ lives. I mean, how do you tell the history of communities that essentially, right, the state sought to erase, never, you know, never thought to preserve. And if they did thought, you know, think to, 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 to share and preserve their stories, um, in really, really narrow, distinct, and often criminalized ways, right, through stories of surveillance, of, of criminalcy, of, of, you know, of, of deviancy. Um, so it's, it's, Recovering these voices and making sure right that museums uh, are are broadly responding to the needs of, of of its community at large is so, so critical and so important and I you know a form of, of, of activism in and of itself. So um, it's it's a it's a treat, I have to say to, to, to curate something for me has become uh, such a such a fulfilling uh, exercise because it is, Um, really working very, very hands-on with, uh, with a number of different communities. And in that way, it feels really collaborative and, and really, uh, and really generative. I have to say it feeds my soul.
0: (laughs) I love that. I, I love that answer. And I love the analogy of peer review within academia to the public in the case of museums. Um, and also just, you know, emphasizing that queer people are part of the community. So in terms of museums serving the public, you know, that's one thing to keep in mind as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. right. I love that. I think that's right. I mean, it's, um, I mean, and, and that's, it, it's so funny cause you know, we make the parallel, but of course that's what the Academy is doing too. Right. Like, I mean, that's what it should be doing. Um, right. That is in, in that way that we're all serving general publics. Uh, like that's, that's who our students are. That's who our that's who we are. And, um, it's just it's it's created such kind of um, divisions I think through through professionalization and other processes that really do feel um, you know that it's just so important right now I'm I'm, I'm finishing curating a new ex- co-curating a new exhibition um, on on HIV AIDS posters from around the world um, and it's it's been such a treat to think about um, you know as someone who also studies HIV AIDS to suddenly revisit these conversations and think. Um, how graphic design, particularly, sent messages of a pandemic. Now that we're think, you know, living um, in this other moment of pandemicness um, with coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, um, when we think about how certain global messages are sent, how do we combat, uh, you know, in a in a global uh you know space and moment, uh, a global pandemic, and it it, it has it, it forces us to ask important questions: how they're going to become accessible, how people are going to read them. Um, how people are going to engage with them, and and that for me is is uh, really exciting to think about different ways that we can approach the material that, that we come across, right? Um, and that's that's been really that's been really fun for me.
0: Well, yeah, that's that sounds like a great exhibit. I think it's. Oh, thank you. It sounds <laughs> yeah, it sounds wonderful. And just one other maybe question or comment on this yeah. topic because I think it's so important that I feel like si- sometimes public history or curating exhibits there's this like motivation to sanitize certain yeah. histories yeah and that's what i find a little bit difficult navigating like the fact that i'm a queer historian and yeah working with like a criminalized archive essentially and also you know the constant moral panics about how queer and trans people are destroying certain quote unquote traditional values yeah and so that that's a tension Do you feel that in your own work?
1: I mean, it's such a, I like that word that, you know, the use, the the word that you use, sanitize. It's sanitized and often whitewashed, right? So, I mean, um, in literal and figurative ways, um, to do queer and trans uh, history and certainly public history um, is, is, you know, feels like a radical act in so many of these spaces, right? Insofar as you're saying, not only does this history matter, it needs to be preserved, it needs to be understood and engaged with. Um, but at its many intersections uh, across uh, to, to tie it into histories of anti-black violence, of xenophobia, of incarceration, um, uh, this is what is queer about the the work in and of itself is that it is moving us towards um, a real kind of reckoning with the past and and uh, you know asking really difficult questions, right? Questions that are, are often uncomfortable for a lot of people um but that's that's also how healing happens i think so it's it's um it's moving us in that direction when we do i think this kind of work and i'm not uh so much good work is out there that is that there's there's so much great work uh that that of course inspires the kind of key questions that i think we're asking in in queer and trans studies and and queer and trans public history i would say in particular Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i love that idea that Using history as something healing. Yeah. You know, haven't haven't thought about it that way or using that word in this context. So thank you for that. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So another interesting factoid that I thought moving a little bit towards your book is that you wrote your dissertation on the post-1940s period. Oh, my
1: God. Yeah. (laughs) And
0: then you wrote a whole book
1: on the pre-1940s period. I mean... (laughs) That's huge. (laughs) Yeah. You're very sweet. Um, I, (laughs) you know, I, I guess I should just say with a slight caveat, don't do it. I mean, (laughs) no, I'm, I'm being facetious. (laughs) Um, And what I mean by that is it was, you know, it's a risky thing to do right when you're on the tenure Mm -hmm. track to kind of take on a new project. Um, But, but I have to say, as I was revising, so I was a postdoc, um, in American studies and, uh. Uh, essentially, Latinx studies, ethnicity, race, and migration at Yale uh, when I finished my PhD, and I got to talking to so many people at the intersection of a number of fields, um, and I was I realized that as I was revising my dissertation, which yeah, as you noted, is a history of LGBTQ Miami, um, and really the central role that that immigration uh, uh, and changes in um, kind of interethnic and and race relations in the city really played in shifting this movement um, after World War II, um, how kind of central it was to to understanding where the movement itself went um, after the, the 40s and into the 50s in particular, um, in this, in this, you know, the city of the Americas in Miami, and as I was k- revising that dissertation for a book, which I have to say I'm, I'm revising now, right? That is, I'm, you know, I didn't let go of that project, um, but I, I felt like I was starting in the middle of the story to to write a history of, of you know, queer history uh, before 1940 is poses a number of different challenges because in large part, right, you're no longer talking about identities uh, like you generally are in a post kind of 1950s way. You're really looking at behaviors um, and looking at desires and looking at You know, subjectivities and and embodiments and a number of different kinds of I mean, I'm not saying you don't do that post 1940s or 50s, um, but that it's they exist in different archives, they exist in in different ways. So it it poses a kind of different archival question at the very least post, uh, you know, pre 1940s, certainly. Um, and there, I think there tend to be a lot less studies on, on that earlier period for a number of, of good reasons, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to kind of assess who is, quote, queer and trans and are we imposing particular identities or, or uh, you know, subjectivities and these kinds of really important and difficult questions. Um, so I, as I was revising that dissertation, um, I realized that I was starting in the middle of the story in many ways. And and I had this kind of ambitious, <laughs> um, if not delusional idea of just saying like, you know what, I'm going to go back to the archives and, and see if I can just kind of write a very kind of... Um, Condense in Miami for a number of reasons has been seriously understudied and probably seriously misunderstood for a long long time and there's a lot of great works um, that exist on Miami increasingly in the last decade or so, but it is such an important city to understanding the kind of um, where, the, where the nation often goes and, and so much of the the kind of key political and social questions of, of the nation certainly today and, and that's also true of earlier but it's it's seriously understudied. Um, And there was this kind of uh, impulse for me to kind of say um, Miami looked, you know, if we kind of look at these secondary sources um, at histories like New York and and Los Angeles and San Francisco, um, Chicago, um, that that's how queer culture developed in Miami too, right? Like this is just what it looked like. Um, And that's essentially what... um, you know what? What so many of us, um, so many of us, you know, kind of end up doing, right? We can't do all the primary research ourselves. We rely, obviously, on secondary sources. But I realized that not only was I starting halfway, in, you know, midpoint story, um, but I also was uh, assuming that Miami's earlier period kind of reflected a lot of what happened in New York, LA, San Francisco. So I had this ambitious plan again to return to the archives and write one kind of condensed chapter. Like, here's everything that happened in Miami pre 1940 um to kind of get me to 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 where I was in that dissertation and revising that dissertation and I uncovered such a, a a wealth of of materials and archives especially after visiting the archives in the Bahamas in, in Nassau in its capital in New Providence that made me realize oh my god I have a radically different interpretation of this early 20th century moment and Miami provides us an opportunity to to think differently about this moment um, and encourage new understandings of how things developed in this this again city of the of the Americas and this Caribbean you know kind of consciousness and uh, paying particular attention right to experiences of people and queers of of, of color um, which is I mean in some ways translating to the work I was doing post 1945 but. Um, in, in this earlier period, just provided us with a, a kind of different periodization for some of the things we uh, we think about during this time. Different ways that culture developed, and um, you know, a lot about how critical uh, uh, race was to the formation of this queer culture, which um, was a was a I, I, there was no turning back. Right, that is, I was going. I, I suddenly found myself fixated on these new archives that I hadn't covered that I, I felt I needed to explore and, and properly research. Um, and then that became Welcome to Fairyland, and now I'm and and that exhibition that you noted earlier. So it, that exhibition covered over a hundred and something years of of Miami's queer culture. So in writing the, the the you know epilogue to to uh, to Welcome to Fairyland, that seemed really easy because I had written a whole book about you know like a whole dissertation about it. I was like, I know what happens after the forties. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah
0: that's interesting well there was a lot there about you know approach you know the hermeneutic approach versus the identitarian approach and the importance of race and to miami's history and to queer history in general um i guess to just you know dig into the book for the readers can you tell us you you said you had a radically different interpretation of of the first half of the 20th century in in Queer Miami, and in what you call Fairyland, how did how did you choose a title, Fairyland, and what are the what's the biggest takeaway from your book that Oof, listeners should good should, questions yeah. too, <laughs> <You're>,
1: <laughs> great questions, Leo. Um, you know, so I feel like Fairyland, so Welcome to Fairyland, almost kind of chose itself. I, I have to say, I, as as I was visiting the archives. Um, Uh, fairyland just kept on popping up as like this kind of key term and and almost, you know, concept that kept on emerging in in so many of my sources. And I kind of was really fascinated by the different ways that this kind of concept of fairyland uh, had different capital and meaning for a number of different communities. And that's largely how the book is threaded. So, I mean, in some ways, like each chapter is kind of devised and and, and organized, uh, while largely chronological, um, by what fairyland meant to a particular group of people. Um, so for some, fairyland might just be somewhere where you can go play golf in the sun and take a little respite from, like, you know, the industrial north or something, you know, something like that. Um, but for for others in the know, whatever that may or may not mean, right, fairyland represented a kind of space for the fairy, like this kind of, um, you know, uh, understanding Miami as a place where one kind of broadly defined could transgress gender and sexual norms, even if just temporarily, um, in this kind of fantastical way that, um, this, it, it provided a kind of space for people to, you know, kind of the Miami seemed like the Las Vegas of its day, what happened in Miami kind of stayed in Miami and people often referred to this kind of concept more generally in ways that I found really, uh, that, you know, I kind of fixated on, I was really intrigued by, um, by by that kind of concept um and then of course for others fairyland was never accessible at all that is they were really just in existence uh to be in service of a fairyland for a kind of white middle class uh and you know aspirational upper class kind of culture um for for a lot of communities of colors for for uh, uh for immigrants for a lot of queer and trans you know people we would understand today as queer and trans um uh Uh, in service of this kind of, uh, you know, tourist economy. Right. And those, so one of the things that, that I think, uh, you know, this book offers new interpretations of is how important it is for us to understand the emergence of these cultures um, in, uh, in this kind of transnational space and moment, right. That is to understand the emergence of Miami's queer culture is to understand the United States' long history of colonialism, right, of empire building, that we cannot understand the formation of, you know, Miami's fairyland outside of the United States' violent and often aggressive, right, certainly um, relationship to Cuba, to to Haiti. Um, And I show examples of this and how certain kind of queer cultures emerge in response to or, or in opposition to some of these kind of, uh, things, right? Um, certainly to put at the center uh, lot, lots of questions about Indigenous removal, of anti Black violence and incarceration, um, how kind of vagrant raids, for example, were such a key way of understanding particular moments of, of queer culture. Um, even just, you know, uh, the kind of, of uh, thinking about how queer it might've been for, for women in Miami beach to wear two piece bathing suits, like kind of things we take for granted perhaps um, to mm. have us reevaluate, you know, these, these competing tourist markets that might've existed and it certainly did exist in Miami. Uh, when, uh, you know, as, as US empire, right, kind of further uh, was encroaching on, on Cuba, um, that one of the ways that Miami allowed its queer culture to emerge was to position itself as a safer place, which was heavily racialized, um, than the kind of paradise uh, that that was being advertised in Havana. Um, I mean these incredible stories that that have always been there but we haven't really thought about them in this kind of queer context. like what did it mean for uh, for for the aviation industry to suddenly thrive and make available an easier trip to to uh, places like Havana, for example. It meant Miami kind of it nudged Miami further in this kind of wide open town perspective that you know, to, to, we are the most accommodating playground that has so much to do with empire and so much to do right with, with colonialism and neocolonialism. So what, what this kind of offers us are like new, uh, periodizations, new kind of seminal moments. Um, there's a raid, right. That I just, that I, that I uncovered, um, in 1937 in, in, uh, in Miami, uh, on this, you know, this queer bar, uh, which was also a space for sex workers and, um, uh, you know, female, what was then known as female impersonators and male impersonators. It's an incredible space um, that was, you know, appealing to both tourists and locals alike. Um, and it was rated at least one of the first times, not by the police, at least officially, but by members of the Ku Klux Klan, right? So if mm-hmm. we think about how central stories of xenophobia, of of anti-Black violence, of, of incarceration and detention were to kind of the, the creation of this fairyland, it it kind of puts us in a different direction to, to think about also how we might uncover more of these stories. Like maybe we aren't looking at all the places um, that, you know, on all the archives that, that are available to us.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And I think it was called La Paloma,
1: right? It was. And I have to say, this is one of the great, I mean, it's, I, I feel like I'm sound so cheesy, but it's a hundred percent true. I promise. One of the great things about exhibitions and, and curatorial work and, and public facing work is that these community, right. That these stories belong to the community. So as, as, as I uncovered the story about La Paloma with the exhibition, for example, a lot of people were like, Oh, I, I think I have a postcard of La Paloma. I just didn't realize that wow. that's what it was. So these kind, you know, one wow. thing <laughs> leads to another and they're like, you know, uh, or they, you know, it, it, these are community, much like the history of, and, and the, creation and establishment of LGBTQ archives after the 70s and into the 80s. And um, all these incredible stories, right, are, are fed by and created and facilitated by the community themselves, right? I mean, um, there was this incredible newspaper that was a. a I, I kept on finding references to the story. Called, uh, this news—it was a weekly alternative newspaper called Miami Life—that doesn't exist in any library or or research depository or archive. Um, but it, it was a. It seems to have been like kind of like a, a scandalous newspaper, right, um, of its time, and it's and it's it's a very difficult newspaper in many other ways. It it was it was a segregationist newspaper. It covered. Um, it, unlike the kind of mainstream new pa- newspapers like Mi- the Miami Herald and the Miami News, which the latter is, is now defunct um, and I should note Miami life of course went defunct in the, in the 60s. Um, it covered a lot of I'm not saying favorably, but it did cover a lot of stories that the mainstream press wouldn't things like bootlegging and and um, you know queer and trans communities um, again not often in the most you know in, in a certainly most most often not in a positive light but it does, it covered stories that a lot of, I mean, this, George Chauncey notes this right in, in his work on gay New York, that a lot of these presses uh, often did what mainstream newspapers uh, out of, you know, essentially respectability politics were were unable or unwilling to do. Um, and I, you know, I contacted the last known owner and, and one of his uh, ancestors had copies of it in his basement um, uh, uh, wow. in or garage. I should say it's, it's Florida. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and it was an incredible story that helped me piece together a lot of like La Paloma, the Raid on La Paloma. It helped me kind of piece some of that together, you know, corroborating it with other, with other sources that were available. Um, but these, I mean, in all these ways, these are community-led efforts. That is, the, the, the community themselves have um, all these rich stories to tell and help us piece together. It's an evasion of our task, I think, for us to be like, this is too difficult to, to do. These sources don't exist. Um, sometimes that actually might be true, but then we also might have to think about what those silences are really telling us, and, in which case, you know, uh, we, we kind of reframe our questions, I think, in, in different ways.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. The, those archival stories of the garages, I, al- I love hearing those. I always love hearing those. And you hear them a lot in queer histories yeah. and histories of marginalized peoples in general. Can,
1: can I make a small plug if that's okay? Of course, definitely. <laughs> I, so I, we, uh, we just won a grant through the Wolfsonian Public Humanities Lab, which I'm, I'm the deputy director of here at, at FIU, and... Um, uh, congratulations to, thank you thank you we won um, this, this most recent grant is through Florida Humanities and, and the incredible the generosity of Florida Humanities and through this grant we are going to digitize those available records of Miami life um, so they'll wow. soon be readily available and digitized to, to everyone and I'm so excited <laughs> I can't even tell that's you amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing that's
0: amazing congratulations thank yeah I saw you. the news of that grant it's huge oh, thank you so and- much you're gonna do a lot of good work. So oh, thank you. I hope so. Everybody should check it out. Yes, <laughs> and yes, I yes. will. I will as well.
1: Of <laughs> thank course. you. Thank you.
0: Um, going back, I did find it so interesting that it wasn't the police; it was the KKK that targeted a queer nightclub, and even just like connecting it to the Paul shootings yeah. too. Like the thing about your book too, and just you know, for listeners, it is the the chapters do look at different cultures and what you term competing visions of the city. And there are migrants from the Bahamas who were over-policed and criminalized and who helped kind of build the contours of like the queerness that was emerging, a queer discourse that was emerging. That's a
1: great phrase. I should steal that. Beautifully (laughs) done.
0: (laughs) And then, and then also on the other hand, there were these, Elite white queers who had like stakes in the real estate market, material financial stakes in building up this tourist industry, and one of the examples that I wrote down was, um, in in one of these I guess fairyland resorts, um, they would employ black bah- Bahamian migrants yeah, yeah. Um, to to work the gondolas, yeah. and they would have to wear a necklace of live crustaceans. Yeah and you yeah you talk about that yeah. um you know the the use of humans as props so my question i mean it's a very broad yeah philosophical question i guess but when we look at queer history and we really center race and colonialism as you do and and the fact that these elite white queers had this space to have pleasure under the the safety net of respectability
1: yeah.
0: of wealth you know, what is our inheritance uh, as queers?
1: Hmm. Oh my goodness. You ask amazing questions. Um, so I, I have to say that example in, in particular that you gave about um, uh, the black Bahamian workers who were asked to write like a, a, essentially write service props, right. In the service of this tourism. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there were, there were so many examples of the kind of eroticization and fetishization of, of blackness in this, uh, and really, in the service and in, into uh, for, for white m- male consumption, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, not exclusively so, but often targeting, right, a very particular idea of, of this, you know, really racialized and obviously racist, right, uh, perception of, of, of blackness as hypersexual, as, as hyper available, as highly, uh, you know, hyper policeable. Feel like i'm making up words but like i mean you get you get where i'm at right um yeah and and these are also and i have to say that they're they're as as someone who write um when we look at these sources and we're in the archives and we're sitting down with these sources they can be incredibly incredibly difficult to process right that is mm-hmm. as we often just don't talk about the uh, the visceral, you know, aspects of the work we do because it's you're alone with these records and you're you're trying to make sense of what is such a difficult idea to process and analyze because it is it is so violent it is it is so um, you know that these are uh, mm-hmm. and and then to put yourself you know to to really kind of um, right interpret not what this might have meant to us but right how this would have been interpreted in this space and time is is. Um, challenging when we have such a knee-jerk reaction um, to such to such violence. so I mean it is it is one of the many difficult aspects of of recovering these histories. Um, there's one story where a black Bahamian woman who Um, unfortunately, you know, we don't even know her name. It's hard. How do you, how do you tell the story of people whose names weren't even recorded? You know, like the dehumanizing effects that the the state bureaucracy has on, on, you know, that immigration records simply don't leave all these kinds of things are really difficult to process that she comes, she's not allowed into the, into Miami because she's, um, single or unaccompanied that is no man was uh, accompanied her and she wasn't married. Um, and she sent back in tears and, and crying, and that's all we know about her. And there were so many other Black Bahamian women and others like her. Um, and part of the kind of transnational story, right, is that if we just followed the, you know, the, the sources themselves and the archives themselves are transnational. If I had kind of followed the narrative that the state, that is the U.S. state, had kind of. Uh, offered about Black Bahamian laborers, you would get a very particular um, and really kind of inaccurate idea of Black Bahamian uh, seasonal work, um, that it was entirely, you know, it was always male driven, that it was, um, and if you go to the Bahamas, for example, you learn that (laughs) Black Bahamian women tried to enter Miami in almost equal numbers, but simply often just weren't allowed in. Um, so like even just kind of the story of immigration to one place, right, of course, is emigration from another, which, you know, we know this, um, but it helps kind of fill the story with, with, um, with texture, especially in the absence of, of, of the humanity and dignity and respect that's simply not afforded to so many of these people. This, this helps kind of recreate the, the the lived experience of people who were were um, terrorized by the state, right? And and were mm-hmm. um, so it's it's in that way. I feel like I lost track of your second the second part of this question, which was a really good one, and I feel awful that I can't remember it. Um, we can we can
0: go back to okay. It. <laughs> but I, I remember that uh, archival story of the woman who yeah. sat back in tears, and it, it was really sad. I'm re- recalling my own experience reading the book. It's and, tough. Yeah. Yeah. The, you feel a lot of empathy, you know, across the decades, even if it happened a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and, the yeah, the other... So, talking a little bit about the Bahamas, you totally decenter the United States in, in the, quote-unquote, histories of, quote-unquote, American cities. Yeah. And I love how you frame Miami as belonging to both the United States and the Northern Caribbean. Can you... I, I was wondering did you approach you know did this come organically from your trip into the archive again and as you started to get more into the pre-1940s uh period yeah or did you kind of already know you know from your post-1940s research that that this was a transnational city and that we can't just look at american cities through this you know frame bound by the nation state with supposedly unimpermeable borders.
1: I feel like I'm taking scrupulous notes, um, <laughs> at least in my head, because you have such a great way of articulating and, and consolidating these big ideas. So thank you for that, Leo. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, that is, to be fair, because, you know, I had done a lot of research on on Miami already, especially the post-World War II era. It's hard to discount Miami as a kind of borderland space, and you know, borderland in a a, you know through waterways, right? That is, we think about this often in the uh, in a in a a kind of land territorial borderland, but of course, it's not exclusively so. um, That Miami certainly is, right, a kind of city of the Americas, and can almost has become a cliche. Um, but, you know, lives in a Latin American and Caribbean consciousness as well. There's no doubt about Mm -hmm. that, certainly in the post-1945 era. Um, And and as the the research shows, right, uh, beginning with its foundation, right, beginning in the 19th century, this has always been, right, a kind of uh, contested colonial space uh, among, you know, different empires and different kind of, Uh, and that's, that's an important part of understanding this history. One of the ways that, that is, I let the archives speak for themselves. And, and, uh, I feel like that also can sound really cliche, but it's true. Um, one of the things that I, I, I uncovered when I, when I went to, you know, when I had that ambitious plan to kind of just write one big chapter on pre-1940 Miami, which of course never happened. And I'm grateful instead it became welcome to fairyland was that as I was looking at sodomy arrests, um, which is when, you know, uh, just a small indicator of what anything could look like, but I just wanted a kind of beginning point. Um, black Bahamians seem to have been overrepresented, right, in in a lot of these things. So it made it led me to go to the Bahamas, right? That was kind of like one of the first moments where I realized I had to make these kind of connections. One of the things that it did for me is that it if it not only did it decenter U.S. you know or, or nation state driven history, um, it also decentered like this kind of Cuban exceptionalism. Like we too often. Think of, of the the significance that that Cuba has played in in South Florida history, which is no doubt very true. Um, but in this earlier period, I would argue that that the Bahamas in particular was far more transformative to establishing so many of the power structures, um, especially in in opposition to 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 immigrants and and, and anti-black uh, uh, anti-black violence. um as, as Cuba was. And that is, in some ways, it kind of challenged uh, the Cuban exceptionalism of the literature and also, you know, of, of where even I was looking, right? Because you kind of make assumptions about where you might find these archives, but the, when you let the archives and the sources in them speak for themselves, it leads you to new directions. So in this way, it was challenging me to think differently about uh, even the kind of early influences or what I imagine might have been the early influences. Um, so that was, that was really generative for me.
0: Mm. Yeah, that, that's so important, challenging the Cuban exceptionalism, yeah. as I've been reading in Latinx history, it's, it's remarkable how much they are overrepresented, and in particular, white Cubans, in after the Cuban Revolution, because, you know, I'm just reminded of um, Nancy Mirabal's book, mm-hmm. uh, Suspect yeah. Freedoms, which brings in black Cubans into also the pre-1940 period.
1: Right. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a dominant narrative that is no doubt really important and really influential, but it is one of many, many narratives, right? Like that is, um, and that's, it's, it's, uh, and too often I think we associate it with periodization. So like, you know, Post-1959, then the narrative turns, you know, so, suddenly like, the sharp turn to, to kind of Cuban exceptionalism, which again is, and there's there's a reason, there's there's important reasons why that's so, but it also discounts some of the earlier influences, even, even within Cuban history itself, right? Like that is, um, when we talk about the Cuban revolution, we assume that we're talking about the 1959 one, but how about the 1933? Like, this is one of the things that I, I, I in the book, I, I argue that it's not just the end of prohibition, but also um, the Cuban Revolution of 1933 that made a massive impact in the changes in Miami's queer culture. I mean, these kinds of things have us think very differently about what we accept as, as, as you know, established narratives um, and, and kind of putting all these pieces together gives a fuller, um, much more textured uh, uh I, I hope, anyway, <laughs> um, narrative that is that that's that that allows us to think even um, you know a little bit differently about how we might understand the the development of, of of these spaces.
0: Absolutely, if there's anything your book does, it's make us think differently about a lot of different things. Well, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. Thank I would you. definitely, yeah, agree with that. Um, you know, I guess. You know, we've been talking for forty minutes, so start (laughs) (laughs) starting to just starting to wrap up. Um I did wanna ask I did notice that yeah, you ended with like the jewel box review. Yeah. Which is which really ties that epilogue to the post nineteen forties queer history that maybe perhaps hasn't written been written extensively from a highly academic um, perspective, but we're very familiar with that, you know. Yeah. I think within LGBTQ communities. Um, so I wanted to ta- I wanted to ask one one of the differences I think in your book, um, in terms of like many of the social urban histories that people have written about earlier, like you mentioned George Chauncey and he he is is that he uses the word gay and yeah. and of course he uses the word gay they tied very tied to the historical context yeah. and he explains that in his book it doesn't necessarily translate that at the title level to the right. rest of society right. but you know he was definitely a historian historian in that sense um but yeah can you talk a little bit about um queerness as as it's used by historians and I'm just curious what you think about this because I I heard you when you were talking about, um, those, those, the dailies Mm -hmm. uh, that that you found that you're going to digitize. I think I may correct me if I'm wrong. Heard you say, you know, queer and trans cultures from this earlier period, but, but trans doesn't appear in your book as a, as a, as a, as a central word. So I I was curious what, what's, what are the possibilities there for people doing um, queer history?
1: Another really great question. So no, you're right. Like as a trans as a kind of analytic, I would say kind of distinctly. So doesn't appear in the book in that kind of way. It's not articulated that way, but it is um, I use queer as a, as an analytic that, that provides space for trans embodiment and trans subjectivity in, in this kind of, uh, in a, in a capacious way, right. That is for me, as I use the word queer in, in Miami uh, in large, part, I like the example you gave with, with the, the use of the word gay in, uh, in George Chauncey's text. Um, because for, for me, right. I found no evidence that there was a kind of uh, uh, that the word gay had achieved any kind of capital, right. In, in Miami's early culture, mm-hmm. at least until uh, in the period that I was covering. Um, and I would say that's largely true of queer in the sense that, it, you know, that we might associate it with it today. It allowed me a kind of, a, because of that, it allowed me um, to use queer in a more uh, capacious way, I think, that that allowed me to think about transgression more broadly like what is it that how how questions of transgression and normativity uh, uh, change and and you know the kind of ebbs and flows how certain things become acceptable how certain things don't become acceptable or become prohibitive and a number of kind of criminalized right how these things change over time um, and one of the things that you know becomes pretty clear to me, and, and I, I stress in the book, is that gender transgression, right, is at the center of more, uh, of far more of these questions. It's at the, it's really the kind of central uh, preoccupation than what we might imagine to be sexual transgression, right? Um, mm-hmm.
0: You and- can't see me, but I'm snapping my fingers. <laughs>
1: Oh good, I'll do. Uh, you can't see me, but I'm joining you, right? That seems weird. I'm like snapping at myself. Um, but 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 that's. I mean, that is. Um, and actually, right. That so much of 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 gay New York suggests something very similar, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Like what what kind of embodiment is the fairy, right? Like, I mean, how are we to understand uh uh, uh the kind of. Em- queerness of the fairy outside of of trans subjectivity right the the possibilities of of it's also where the field is today versus where the field was in in the 90s no doubt and and um where where the literature has had us think very differently and and no doubt that a lot of that has to do with with um you know i'm just as 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 influenced and inspired by works in, in critical race theory and, in, uh, in ethnic studies and, and, and black studies to kind of put these, you know, how do we not understand, uh, transness and its relationship to, to race and blackness, um, after reading C. Riley Snorton, you know, like all these kinds Mm -hmm. of really important questions, uh, that, that I hope kind of, you know, uh, come out in the book right that but but no doubt I would argue that the book itself shows that gender was a far more uh important indicator to to triggering uh, these kind of key questions than than what we might read as sexual transgression
0: mm, yeah, I love how you put all of that and. And also interesting that gay didn't have that kind of purchase that it did in New York during this time period.
1: It's, it's yeah. It's a smaller place too, you know, like it's sheer numbers, (laughs) like less texture as a city, no doubt. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Yeah. And I can just imagine like being queer earlier in that period. So, so much of it is subtle, like communication networks are subtle. Yeah. And how do we literalize that on the page? You know, there's, Yeah. yeah, there's, it's an impossible project in some, in some ways.
1: You have a great way of phrasing things. I'm so jealous. Like, um, I love that. It's true. <laughs> I love that. Thank, you. Thank you for all your compliments today. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's very sweet. <laughs> oh man.
0: But, so I just, yeah, I just wanted to wrap up with, um, you telling us what you're working on now. I know you did that a little bit yeah. earlier. Um, but if you could, yeah, what's the most exciting thing you're working on now and wh- what do you want people to know?
1: Whew. So I'm excited about a number of, of grant funded projects, including the building of a Miami Studies program uh, here at FIU that is generously funded by uh, a National Endowments for the Humanities grant. Um, I'm working on two big Mellon Foundation grants that, that we were fortunate enough to win uh, that put at the center, decolonizing archives, um, working with local community partners. I mean, it's a dream, dream, dream uh, of, a, of, a, of a project for me. Um, the, the digital exhibition that will be free and completely accessible to everyone on the HIV AIDS uh, posters from around the world uh, should be out in May. I'm really, really excited about that. So, so, so look out for that. Um, and I'm revising, um, uh, you know, the kind of, goodness, somebody called it the sequel the other day or something like that, and I was so offended. I don't know like I mean i don't know. I see them as really different <laughs> um not that sequel whatever anyway so it's it's kind of queer miami post nineteen uh forty i'm I'm revising that currently, and uh I'm really excited about the you know all these kind of uh the way that we kind of reach um and do work in service of of the communities that we are of course researching and and doing work on that. um, I also see myself, of course, as a critical that as I'm a member of of these communities, right? that is, and i uh feel feel very fortunate to be to be um, invited in and 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 to remain in, like even after all of this so so um I thank you for for letting me plug some of that stuff. I appreciate it.
0: Of course. And you're you're from Miami too. I
1: right? am. I'm born and raised here. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's, that's great. That's yeah. so wonderful that you're able to write a book on your own roots, you know?
1: <laughs> it's true. I have to say it was, it wasn't even like a topic that came to me, you know, like naturally or something. Right. But, um, uh, it was, I was asking kind of different questions and then, um, I was like, I think this all kind of comes to you know to the to the to the fore and, and when we think about miami and then it kind of uh through a number of great conversations with with um people i really admire and trust i was like well, wow, maybe i should write about miami um but also i feel like sometimes we underappreciate some of the the own skills we have that is i didn't that you know the the language right like to to you know speaking spanish or, or french and and to do kind of a, this th- these kinds of things that uh I don't want to say we take for granted, but living in, in, a, in a trilingual city, um, largely trilingual, you know, you don't you don't realize that some of these things are, are, are you're able to do some of this work in large part because you're a product of it. Right. Like um, so it's it's anyway, kind of um, it, it kind of made me ask different, you know, some different questions about the work that I was already really interested in as a as someone who is formed from here. Yeah,
0: absolutely, and I, I agree with you about um, c- certain times we may take for granted or undervalue our own skills that that the academy has undervalued, and but that you know our own communities—it's part of our survival. So
1: now I'm snapping.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's Well, I'm definitely gonna keep an eye out for the HIV/AIDS exhibit um, that'll be you know online and freely accessible, and everybody else should keep an eye out as well um, thank you very much for joining me today and for giving this talk on Welcome to Fairyland. I hope it can be used by many people, graduate students who are reading this, et cetera, or who are listening and reading your book. But thank you so much, Julio.
1: Thank you, Leo. I really, really appreciate it. And I, the conversation was really awesome. I appreciate the time and energy. Thank you so much.